Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Laird Edmund, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you for asking me. This is an honor and a pleasure. You're the chair of the psych department at Northwestern College in Orange City, Iowa, for a little while longer before retirement. And uh, you've done a lot of work with Myron Penner, friend of mine, frequent guest on this podcast. Um, and that's how I met you. And we've become kind of buddies over the last couple years going to American Academy of Religion conferences and, and stuff like that. So uh, we've been meaning to do an episode for a while, and we're finally here, and I'm very grateful. Oh, it's great to be here. Give us a little bit of your kind of general background story, how you ended up studying psych of religion and cognitive science of religion. I went to college as an undergrad. I loved literature, and I loved kind of thinking big thoughts. And so I ended up with a double major in English literature and classical languages, and then I went off to grad school at Notre Dame to get my PhD in English lit, you know, focused in on 17th century British lit, really. As and, one does, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, as yeah, as as one would. But then was an English professor for about seven, eight years, during which my dissertation completely collapsed and I was a, a, a man without a PhD, which in academic world is a disaster. So I knew I had to either leave academics or or change direction. At the time, I was really interested in how students learn to think well. I thought, I, I'm going to go into sort of thinking and decision-making and critical thinking pedagogy. So that led me into cognitive psychology. So I just started over. My, I'm married to an amazing woman who pretty much said, well, if this is what you want, you need to go do that. And so then I started over with a PhD program in, in uh, CogPsych from the University of Minnesota and did that and got that degree and then ended up at Northwestern. You know, cognitive science of religion, it's a little destabilizing at times. You know, it, it can be destabilizing to identify or think you're identifying sort of internal neurological or social or whatever mechanisms that, you know, explain to some degree why you are having the kinds of religious experiences you might be having or why it's meaningful to you. And anytime we can, we explain something in whole or in part, there's a fear that we are explaining it away. Mm 
right? If it is this, is it just this mechanism? Is it just that my brain wants dopamine hits or whatever? So Mm -hmm. how do you sort of, you know, set some of our minds at ease maybe because what people don't know, what I know about you is that you are a person of profound faith, that this has not sort of snuffed out the candle on your devotional life, your sort of commitment to Christianity. So I'm, I'm curious to hear you respond to that a little bit. Sure. So a little bit of my background. When I started college as an undergrad, I was a, a name it and claim it full gospel Pentecostal folk who, you know, didn't believe Christians should ever get sick because, you know, you just, if, if you believe gee, by his stripes, <laughs> we are healed. So, you know, Christians shouldn't have any illness. Wow. We should be rich. Quite a starting place. Yeah, it, it was, you know, and, and then, of course, I went to a, a school where those beliefs were like mocked. I mean, just, I, you know, I felt like I was in battle uh, for my first couple of years of college constantly. And I thought if I let go of this fundamentalism that defined my faith, I would let go of my faith. In some senses, being in that setting was a gift to me for being able to really interrogate those beliefs. The uh, interesting story about this is that after my sophomore year of college, I was so just tired of fighting people about issues of faith that I went to Oral Roberts University for summer school uh, because I just wanted to go someplace where I knew, I mean, these people speak in tongues, so they must also be real Christians. Uh, So... (laughs) So I uh, went to ORU uh, and literally I uh, took a, a class on divine healing because, you know, where else would you learn about divine healing but from uh, people who teach at Oral Roberts. And one day the chair of the religion department invited me to his house for dinner. And I went to his house for dinner and we're having a conversation about the gospel of John and its location in the other gospels and when it was written compared to the other gospels. And I said something about the need to believe scripture literally. And this Old Testament professor looked at me and he said, oh, Laird, none of the religion faculty at Oral Roberts would consider themselves fundamentalists. You you can't really know Hebrew and be a fundamentalist. It doesn't work. And it just blew my mind apart. And it gave me permission to step back from that fundamentalism and realize, oh, that's an interpretive scheme that isn't essential to my faith. I've come to the point where I really think we are whole people, that body, soul, mind are are just names of parts of who we are, but we are one, we are whole. If faith is real, certainly it's going to be embodied. And if God is real, certainly we're going to find evidences in our brains of how that all works. Well, embodiment is a nice bridge into talking about ritual. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll close that circle in a minute, but first, why don't you tell us how you came to care about rituals, rituals just being one of many possible topics of cognitive science of religion or psychology of religion, sociology of religion, et cetera. I always describe myself as an evangelical, gone to rock and roll churches, uh, never been to sort of... uh, Never attended the kind of large-scale evangelical megachurch, but the churches I attended were, uh, you know, I love contemporary rock and roll worship. But as I have watched my family grow, and as I become involved as an elder in my own church, I have seen just how much the rhythms of the church calendar sort of give our lives a, a, a depth of meaning as we understand how we're rooted into something else. And so that piece, I just became more and more interested in, in how ritual works. Then when I got connected with Justin Barrett and, and a cognitive science of religion, there's a whole sort of stream of research in cognitive science of religion on ritual. The first work I did was in theory of mind and in uh, looking at uh, different ways of experiencing God in prayer and how that relates to theory issues of theory of mind, how, how we understand what other people are thinking. And we use all these evidences of, you know, I'm looking at your face right now, uh, trying to 
you know, and you're nodding, which is great indication to me that I was nodding at you that you, I wanted you to explain the term theory of mind. You picked <laughs> and, up on that. You then so, defined it. Absolutely. And so <laughs> and with, but without the, Zoom, if we were on a phone call, you wouldn't have picked up on that. I mean, that's actually kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I was very interested in that um, if we're praying and having sort of communicating with God and, and God experiences in our worship life, and yet it's a little hard to look at God nodding. You know, I mean, you, you can't right. see the look on God's face. We we don't have the normal evidence right. that we use to do theory of mind. So you have to generate an entire new theory of mind in spiritual experience. In my experience, the sort of clearest indicator in my discernment process that something is from God is actually if I get sort of flooded with joy around Uh, something. Yeah. I take that as an indicator. And of course I could be wrong. That could, there might not be a God, but if there is, and you know, the joy of the Lord, the peace that surpasses all understanding, these, these are really great poetic uh, phrases that could also be described as like neurotransmitter cocktails, right? To to go neurologically. And so I love that though. That's so interesting that you don't have the same feedback moment by moment that you have with another person. Yeah. And and so you have to kind of train your theory of mind in a different mode. And this is then is where sort of spiritual practices come in as a Christian who believes there, there, there is like, you know, bad faith and good faith. A bad ways of understanding, good understanding. That's that then becomes mediated sort of by the church and the church tradition, where if some pastor says that God told him to divorce his wife and take three concubines, the, the church would step in and say, "No, God didn't didn't tell you to do that." Yeah. For Christians, there is there's a sense of the community that helps us develop a, a sense of what what is it that God is saying and God isn't saying, and that. The, most Christians live their whole life without ever having a sense of God speaking to them. And, you know, that's just fine. <laughs> well, yeah, that's so interesting. So that that does bring us to ritual, because one of the ways that we sort of police those boundaries, right, of orthodoxy or even orthopraxy, right, practice, like pastors don't divorce their wives and take concubines. That's yeah. wrong practice. Yeah, You know, one of those ways is through creeds and statements of faith and all that stuff. But another way is through our embodied practices. It's through taking the Eucharist, through cor- corporate prayer. It's through even church discipline is, you know, which uh, has its own issues, is a, is a type of ritual. Rituals are not only religious though, right? So you yeah. came to it through cognitive science of religion. Mm-hmm. But what is a ritual in general if a psychologist is talking about rituals? Sure. We, we think of ritual as something where uh, we're looking at something that has predefined sequences that are somewhat somewhat rigidly adhered to. The community sort of mediates that or, or tells you, here are the sequences. This is how we do this. And they're somewhat rigid and prescribed. Mm-hmm. They also then are somewhat formal and repeated. Now, there are certainly rituals that only happen once in your lifetime. Yeah, a a bar mitzvah, right, baptism, yeah. That bar mitzvah, you know, theoretically marriage (laughs) happens only once. In in earlier societies, you know, rites of passage. Right, yeah. That's like you do that once to become an adult, right. Except that for the community, they happen regularly, but only once for the person. So we have that, that, that sort of predefined sequences, somewhat rigidly adhered to the, the order and the way the sequences work, sort of prescribed by the community and, and embedded then in this sort of larger system of meaning than symbol. But he, and here's the, the really interesting piece of this is that they tend to be causally opaque. Hmm. That is, we don't know why we're doing this thing in this way but we know it works. Whereas there are all kinds of behaviors we go through that we know, well, you have to do it this way in order to get this outcome. You have to do all of these things in order to, you know, install this software on your computer and you have to do it just right because computers are really fundamentalist in this way. Right. But that's not a ritual because it's not causally opaque. We know it's just a process. It's a process. And there are even things that we don't know why you have to do it this way, but you know you have to do it this way because we know that for some reason this is how this, you know, machine works or this engine works or but for a, a ritual we don't know why it works. 
a lot of superstition is ritual. Think about baseball batters, you know, who do certain things. Although I guess you could make an argument that in some way that that provides a psychological need to sort of recenter their mind uh, and get them to like a normal, like a, a repeated base state from which they can perform their duties. But it's not like actually licking their nose or yeah, yeah, scratching so their groin or whatever does anything, right? Well, but even, even think, let's say uh, uh, military honors at a funeral. Okay. Why is it they have the, the coffin draped in the flag that way? Why that flag? And then when they take the flag off, it's there's a very rigidly prescribed way those, you know, Marines or soldiers around that coffin lift up that flag, snap it, fold it in a particular way. And then if there's a 21 gun salute, well, why do we have people just shooting guns in the air? Oh, no, right. it's not people just it's seven people shooting in a particular way and then guns down and then guns up fire yeah. guns down. I mean, it's all prescribed. Yeah. And no one could tell you, well, it's because when you do it this way, you get this outcome. No, 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 no. No, it's not about the outcome. It's not like, it's oh, not. his death will not have been in vain or something yeah. like that. Yeah. And yet having that ritual with this oh, very yeah. prescribed actions yeah. is so deeply meaningful. Right. It, it, it connects into a whole world of meaning that has been connected to that ritual. This, this notion that it's causally opaque, it's, it moves the ritual into a, pl- a different place than we do this because we're looking for this outcome. No, we do this because this is how our people do this. Yeah, so that's so interesting. It's giving me new language for something, a story I've told on the podcast before. So when I was hanging out with a Jesuit, uh, Father Paul Federer, still kicking in his 90s, just total badass. Awesome. Um, he's in retirement <laughs> now, but he's still alive and we text sometimes. Anyway, at some point he told me in part of my like discernment process of whether to become Catholic or not. And he was like, I think you should start taking the Eucharist when you go to mass. And I had not been taking it since college at, at Catholic mass out of respect. And, you know, so he gave me that permission and I felt like, all right, well, if I've got a priest telling me, I already have sort of my theological intuitions here that this is a kind of a silly gatekeeping. And now I've got a priest. So I started taking it and I took it once at our local, like the closest parish to our house here in Washington. And I had a conversation with the priest afterwards where I very stupidly told him about all of this and his response to me, which again, I've shared before, but you probably haven't heard it Laird is, Oh no. Like it's, you know, you shouldn't do that. Like if you take it in the right state, then it's going to, it's going to be spiritual food. But if you take it in the wrong state, like it, it will spiritually harm you. Yeah. And, you know, I described that as like the magic bread model, which I thought was kind of silly and superstitious. I, I understand there's maybe a scriptural basis for it or whatever, but that just on the face of it, like I, I just can't believe that. So that's kind of how I've thought of it before as like, well, that's just a silly belief. I don't really care what the, you know, how someone's interpreting the text, but this is giving me something else, which is like, no, if he, in some sense, his answer is trying to get rid of that causal opacity, (laughs) right? Like he's trying to tell me, no, this is, and maybe, maybe he would say it's still a mystery, but Mm -hmm. he's, he's taking some of the mystery out by sort of describing how the mechanism works rather than letting the Eucharist be this great mystery mm-hmm. that we engage in, like it, somehow we eat Christ's blood body and drink his blood. Like somehow we are, we are doing this in union with him and to, to like get into the, you know, and I guess this is the same thing around transubstantiation and getting really into that conversation. Well, how does it become Christ's body and blood or does it at all? Or is it just metaphor? I don't know that I, it's interesting. This is just a new angle for me of like, Oh, it's kind of robbing it of something to get so into the weeds on it. If you're Protestant, you want to know the why of everything. We're not particularly comfortable with paradox and mystery. No, 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 we're not. (laughs) Trying trying to get more comfortable with it. 
if you try to explain it, there's a sense that you actually took something away from it. And, you know, so there's a sense that, you know, why do we have wedding rings? What, what is it about a ring? Well, oh, well, and then we try to explain, oh, the circle, endless lot, you know, and, and it, no, that it doesn't quite, it, you're not getting it. And, and there's a sense that, no, we have wedding rings because this is a symbol that people have been using for, oh, a few thousand years and we're connected. And there's, I mean, there's a great story that Dimitris Segalitis tells in his book on ritual, which if you have not read is just splendid. I read a, like a transcript of a short NPR interview with him about that book. I'll have Josh track that down and put a link in the show notes. It's a quick read or a quick listen and would be a good companion piece here. Sure. But, but he tells a great story of an anthropologist who was with some group, some tribe that was uh, they they were upset because they didn't get many tourists coming to visit the tribe, and that was a great source of income. And they asked the anthropologist, what could we do to get more tourists? And the anthropologist said, well, you could have some extreme ritual or something. And they said, ooh, what is that? And he said, well, I don't know. You could do fire walking. They said, oh, what is that? And he was joking. They were not. And so they had him teach them how to do fire walking. And so they started doing this as a tribe, started doing firewalking. Wow. To try, you know, they, they, they wanted more tourists and it was working. I mean, people started hearing about this tribe that does firewalking like, you know, every two weeks and people started coming and the anthropologist. <laughs> wow. But the anthropologist asked them, he said, okay, so what will you tell people when they ask, where does this ritual come from? And they said, oh, we will tell them. This is how our fathers did it and how our father's fathers did it and how our father's fathers did it. They it picked has it up. always been our ritual. Oh, my gosh. Because people intuitively know if you've got some ritual that your people have been doing for generations, it is full of meaning and power. We don't know why. Just because. So there's a, a nice interview with you and Sari Concepcion and Justin Barrett. Um, we'll also put a link to that from their blueprint uh, 1543 project. And you guys have also a couple sort of takeaways about ritual from that, that I thought we could also chat about. And the first one is that rituals engage our bodies. And you said earlier, if faith is real, certainly it will be embodied, which I really picked up on. And I think, ah, okay. So if faith is embodied and then rituals engage our bodies, then we're starting to understand maybe at a scientific level why religion would involve rituals. Is is that right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, and there are all kinds of physiological experiences that people have when they engage in rituals. One of the things it does is, I mean, it, it taps into our endorphins, it taps into dopamine. Rituals help with emotion regulation. And so that's kind of an embodied process. It helps sort of calm and de-stress people. Now, there are all kinds of really interesting uh, sort of theories about why does ritual lead to people being de-stressed? And even interesting research where uh, people were put under stress. Here's the the setup. They were brought into a room. They're part of some experiment. They're supposed to, they, they said, okay, here's this art object, this kind of weird bronze art object. Um, We would like you to give a three-minute lecture on the art object in the next room to a panel of art experts who will then judge your understanding of the art. Well, nothing makes people more stressed than, than, you know, speaking in public where you're going to be judged. Oh, baby. So, and, and, but half the people were supposed to come up with some sort of a three minute lecture on the art object that they would just give to an empty room just to practice public speaking, low stress situation. Mm -hmm. Then what they did is, but we'd like you to clean the art object first. And then they filmed people and they were shown, yeah, you need to clean this, need to do this, need to do this, need to do this. The people who were under stress cleaned the art object ritualistically and the people who were not under stress didn't use sort of ritualized action where they were they were slavishly replicating the actions of the person who showed them how to do it that was the ritualistic repeated actions actions that 
didn't necessarily make sense for the cleaning, but were an important part of the cleaning ritual. Yeah, I mean, it's just people were drawn to doing something ritualistically, and it helped control the stress. And there's a sense that doing a ritual, one of the things a ritual does, of many things, but one of the things it does is it allows us to have control over something. I mean, we know that this is a prescribed series of movements, of words. We do it in the right way. We do it together as a community. We have control over this. And it, it helps sort of hijack our stress response and calms people, leads to emotional regulation. People ask me, why do you think that we're having this sort of epidemic of anxiety and depression in our society? Everyone likes to point to social media as the reason for the epidemic of anxiety and, and depression. And, you know, it's like, well, sure, I know that is contributing to it. Yeah. But I also think one of the things contributing to it is that um, we're living in a world where we were not we did not evolve to live in this world. That is, as Justin Barrett will say in his book, you know, Thriving with a Stone Age Brain, you know, we, we have the same brains functionally that we had 35,000 years ago right. when we're on the African savanna in a small hunter-gatherer band. People in that group never had to answer the question, what will you be when you grow up? They never had to answer the question, who will you marry and how will you find them? They never had to answer the question, what is your place in society, in the community? Who are you? Those are not questions our brains evolved to ever answer. So those answers cause us incredible amounts of stress. Right. And so how do we help respond to that? I think, well, engaging in community-based rituals is one of the ways we help de-stress from those yeah. things. Yeah. And just at the time we most needed it, the evangelical church dumps all the rituals. <laughs> Hey y'all, producer Josh here. On Thursday, we'll be releasing the Next Generation Got Culture Hour for June. And this week, Dan got into his return to church. And we kind of see Dan and Tony's dynamic play out in a fun way. I'll say it's a little tense what goes down. And then Tony shares some of his, kind of his orientation to heresy and some of his friends who have kind of gone in and out of orthodoxy. It's a really fun episode, and you can join the Patreon at patreon.com slash dancoke, where you'll get access to two private episodes per month, as well as access to the private Facebook group for patrons. Um, and it's just a fun community. It's been really cool to kind of see that grow as the show has been around for a few years now. Um, again, you can join that at patreon.com slash dancoke. And now back to Dan's conversation with Laird. community of faith should be the place you go to when you desperately need help. And, you know, I, I think we've talked about this before, but one of my very favorite movies in the whole world is Larson, the Real Girl, which has just got this fantastic scene where the main character, Lars, comes walking down from the upstairs of his house. And there are these three old women sitting in his living room. And Lars is going through a very difficult, emotionally wrought time of loss. And he says, what are you doing here? And these women say, sit. We're, they're all knitting. And he said, go get some hot dish. They're in Wisconsin. Go get some hot dish and sit because that's what we do. We sit. Hmm. And I, that scene, I just it, it makes me weep because that's what the church is supposed to be. These are the people who come and sit with you. That, that's where you go when you're in your deepest sort of time of, of, of struggle. And so, as you said, emotional abuse takes that away. You, you, now you don't trust these people at all. Yeah. You, you, you're divorced from this community. And the rituals themselves may become trauma triggers, yes, anxiety triggers. And then you don't have access to the rituals even in a different community with a different set of people. Yeah. 
you know, even walking into a church building uh, causes a lot of people to have um, PTSD flashbacks or panic attacks. And that's such a loss. Oh, huge loss. It makes me think of COVID, you know, and this, this great interruption, you know, we're going to talk about more things that rituals do, but this, you know, the, just this really embodiedness of it is particularly COVID related. I don't know. I don't know if you've sort of have any formed thoughts on, you know, what those costs have been. Well, uh, one of the things that my wife and I tried to do, we, we failed as often as we succeeded, but during COVID, when it was time for church, we actually would kind of get dressed for church, come down, set up our, uh, 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 you know, computer yeah. with Zoom church, hook it up to a speaker so that it was louder. Mm-hmm. And then that way we could go ahead and sing along with the songs and still hear it. We would stand when it was time for a song. We'd we'd stand. We, we'd go through the whole things. If it was communion, we'd set up our wine and the bread, and and we always light, lit a candle for church and, and tried to reproduce a bit of the sort of specialness of a church service. And we would tell other people, no, we, you, you still need to do this, or you're just watching TV. Hmm. And there's a sense that, you know, I want to say, well, oh, that's so Protestant, <laughs> <laughs> in that you, you think the most important thing is listening to the words and hearing the sermon, taking some notes on the sermon. And it's all about the propositions. Hmm. It's all about getting the doctrine right. I mean, I can imagine other reasons people would do that. There could be mobility reasons. There could be, oh, yeah. you know, stuff like that or, or, you know, compromise situations. But if, you, you know, you know, you know, the individual people you're talking about. And, and so maybe for them, it is more about. Well, it's basically just a Bible study that I used yeah. to go to a building for, yeah. but I don't need to. And that would be, and that would be in your view and, and in the view of cognitive scientists and others who study rituals would be kind of, you know, missing a big part of the point of going. The next thing, and, and this is where what a lot of us think about when we think about rituals, especially coming from Protestant contexts, if that's us, is that rituals reinforce beliefs. And so here we might start getting into the, well, it can be used for good or bad waters, right? It all depends on what those beliefs are. But can you tell me a little bit about how it reinforces beliefs? Do we know how that works? Well, one of the ways it reinforces beliefs is that we have a lot of intuitions. Jonathan Jong, who's a, a, a scholar in cognitive science and religion, who's also an Anglican priest, told me once, he thinks of it not the co- as the cognitive science of religion, but rather the cognitive science of idolatry, because <laughs> it, 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 it explains why we tend to believe the wrong things. Huh. You know, we have these anthropomorphic ideas about God, and just, we sort of kind of think God likes the people we like, God hates the people we hate. Clearly, God is uh, politics is similar to our politics, but we right. also have these assumptions about God as a, a very, very powerful other who we need favors from. And hence, if you need favors from God, you have to bring gifts. You have to like engage in social exchange. Well, that's that's in that's intuitive. People don't have to learn that. They just intuit that. And theologically, that's wrong. <laughs> you know, it's like hmm. the whole notion of grace is that. You, you can't bring anything to God that God needs that's going to get you God's favor. It's not how it works. And so we have to overcome that intuition that is just deeply embedded. We have to overcome our intuition of thinking of God as very much like our feared grandfather or our father. Or yeah, it's, uh, it's got me thinking about the Bible, both like – Old, Old Testament, the kind of pre-monotheistic Israelites and, you know, all the local gods and household gods and, you know, Baal and and all these graven images, the golden calf in the in the desert, as well as sort of Jesus and the way that his teachings often push against this ethnocentrist sort of what we might describe in today's psychological uh, language as like naive default psychology of human beings that like, well, of course everybody in my group is good and we're right. And you know, these kind of like these things that, yeah, like you're, you don't have to be taught that you sort of now what 
what your group believes is right, that all changes and you get a random hand dealt to you of that. But the mechanisms are sort of inbuilt, right? Absolutely. And so, yeah, I don't know if you want to sort of talk about where you see that in the in the scriptural story. So we, we have these intuitions that can lead us wrong. What ritual does, and, and here's where I'll, I'll look at the word of, of, of Robert McCauley has done work in this area. He talks about maturational natural intuitions. That is intuitions that just we mature into. It's, it's you know, we, we avoid saying they're hardwired because that makes people think, you know, there's a, a God spot in the brain. No, no, no. Well, and also it, it take it has to develop through the lifespan yeah. for some of these to show up, right? Yeah. So, but, but we mature into a whole set of intuitions, but those aren't particularly, I mean, they, they're not necessarily rigid. It is possible to adjust them and change them. And you change them through not just one time learning this Bible story. Oh, right. now I'll think differently about grace. Right. It's got to be a repeated story that you hear and participate in over and over and over and wow. over and over and over again. Yeah. And this is how ritual then helps tweak our intuitions into the right story. Yeah. And this is the next one. So after reinforced beliefs, I, I wrote down, you know, from your, from your conversation with Sari and Justin, that rituals shape our character. Yeah. And so it, it's not just shaping our cognitive belief, which, which it does, but it also shapes our habits, right? Yeah. And when, when I think of care, I mean, I'm curious what you mean by character. What I mean by character is basically on questions or behaviors that have some sort of moral or ethical dimension. How do you regularly choose? What do you regularly do? Right. So that's your character, essentially. That's your character. And, and at a deep, deep level, what you want is for people's character to feel in some ways like it's not even a choice. And here's, here's what I mean. With all these interviews with people who risked their lives saving Jews during World War II, did incredible things to protect Jews from the Nazis. Later, when they were interviewed, people were asked, well, how did you make the decision to do this? This was so dangerous, and you knew people who were dying doing it. How did you make this decision? Almost to a person, they all replied, well, what else could I do? There was no other choice. That's character. <laughs> it's like it didn't even occur to them that they could have been selfish in this situation. No, they had to do this. You get to that point through sort of just this repeated both action and hearing the story over and over again. And it, it sort of embeds in you. And it's like uh, Jamie K. Smith at, at, at Calvin, his book on you, you are what you love. And he's, he talks about uh, liturgies. And liturgies and rituals aren't exactly the same thing, but, but they are certainly related. And he, he talks about the liturgies of our life and how that just simply forms what we habitually love, what we what we yearn towards, what we what we seek, and that then becomes our character. And so it it becomes a point where now when my whole family gets together, I spend a lot of time, and now this is kind of a, a ridiculous example. I spend a lot of time just being the bartender. I, I walk around and ask, "Would you like anything?" I I you know I'm, I I'll, I'll make stuff, and I. I that just seems to be, well, of course, I'm going to serve my family and help sort of lubricate this social thing. And I'm going to make them some food and we're just going to. And, and what I really want to do is help them all to relax and have a lovely time together. And learn to associate good feelings with that group. Right. Yes. And, and that setting, like I was just thinking about things that didn't make sense to me as a kid that are starting to make sense as I begin to parent, a, you know, a toddler and I'm thinking about like family dinner time, you know, yeah. which is so laborious as like a teen and preteen and whatever. <laughs> um, but I'm thinking like, yeah, but fast forward 40 years when at 55 you get divorced or your partner dies or you lose a child. Oh. And like if you have kept up these family relationships around the dinner table or something similar, well, now you can go regulate and be supported 
through this ritual that yeah. you've got decades of experience with, of course, not every night once you move away, but access to that power, that self, that emotional regulation, that sense of being held, you know, and, and the same thing would go for religious rituals. Right. So, but I, I like thinking of non-religious examples to sort of like yeah. make the point of mm-hmm. like, yeah, just a family dinner, which plenty of non-religious families have as a regular ritual or a weekly or monthly, you know, friend get together. You know, yeah. we, we would always go to, you know, a certain friend's house with a certain group of friends, my parents' old Bible study friends, you know, for 4th of July and the Super Bowl and, you know, a handful of these kinds of events. Often enough that I have called on some of those adults in difficult times throughout my yeah. life. Yeah. I've had access to them, right? Because we did it enough times and it had enough meaning and I'd built up enough sort of trust with them, which mm-hmm. is maybe a good transition to this final point of what rituals do, which is they can powerly transform social groups. So I'm talking about families and stuff, but we're also yeah. talking about church and right. And this is one of the things I've, I've spoken about before, but I mean, again, go back to that small hunter gatherer band on the African Savannah. One of the most important tasks is knowing who's in your group. Yeah. Cohesion. Who's not. Yeah. So social cohesion, group cohesion, really important, and being able to identify your people, really important. Because you have to be able to trust them because it's a dangerous world. Right. And how do you know if someone is one of your people? They look like you. That's how you know who's in your family. They they smell a little bit like you. (laughs) They look like you. And they act like you. So how does the church try to create a family out of a whole group of people who don't actually look alike? Yeah. You act alike. And it sort of hijacks that kin recognition process in the brain to say, oh, you must be in my family too. You people, you are my people too, because we do this, this thing together and we're not doing it because we're all trying to, you know, it's like you go to the grocery store and everyone is acting the same. You don't think these are my people because you're all acting the same because you're not engaged in some ritual that is causally opaque. No, you're all engaged in behavior and you all know why each, but you know, right. But you get in a group and you engage in some causally opaque, very prescribed ritual together. Well, why would you do that? I'm doing that. No, we do this because we are in the same group together. Does language here apply the same way? Because it's got me thinking of like in-group language, like speech is a type of behavior, right? And I'm wondering if this ties in. I, I want to just throw in, uh, when we talk about religious ritual in particular, there is a, a fairly sort of restricted, constrained definition of what that means Sure, that involves uh, some sort of, uh, as, as we said, you know, prescribed community action that is causally opaque, but then for it to be a religious ritual, there's sort of an action sequence where God is involved or the right. God, either as the agent doing the action or as the one who, for whom the action is being done. And so those called special agent versus special patient rituals, this is the work of uh, Tom Lawson and Bob McCauley. They look at this and how uh, across religions, Around the world, people tend to have the same intuitions about if the ritual is what's called a special agent ritual, where God is the one doing it, or rather God's representative, then the ritual has to be done in a particular way. It's a big deal, yeah, and it happens once in your lifetime, like a, a, a wedding. Around the world, culture to culture, weddings are some of the biggest things people do. Mm-hmm. And high, high sensory overload, smells and bells stuff. And it happens once. Well, that's because God did this. You know, God's the one who made this new family here. We watched wow. happen in front of us. Yeah. And and so it's known as a special agent ritual. So things like baptism uh, in the in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, you know, last rites, confirmation, ordination, big, huge rituals, very important rituals. One of the things about those rituals is that it takes a prior ritual to make the ritual happen. That is, you can't have a wedding if you don't have a priest. You can't have a priest if they haven't been ordained. And so they can't be ordained if they haven't been 
baptized. So you've got this sequence of rituals that mm. lead up to the ability to have this ritual. So much architecture on which to hang group identity, you know, again, cohesion, sort of, yeah, hijacking that kin structure. I think yeah. my point with the language was just that it also activates oh. that kin yeah. part of our brain of like, oh, we're, oh, you're in. You you're use in. the word sanctified, yes. you know, in language, or you have a Christian fish on your, on your business's billboard. Like, okay, I get it. We're in together. We're in a group together. Oh yeah. Uh, and even, you know, when Christians get together and talk about, well, I just really felt the Lord telling me I needed to go do this. And if you're with, you know, if they're non-Christians in the group or, or like non-evangelicals in the group, they'll say, wait, what? You're talking right. to yeah. God? <laughs> it's it's yeah. just this weird thing going on. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about meaning. All so right. one of the weird things about rituals is their meanings are so profound and yet you've talked about they're opaque in terms of cause, but they yeah. can also be opaque in terms of what they mean to people. How do the meanings get developed? Does someone decide what they mean? Does, is that an organic process generally? Does hierarchical meaning decision work or does it have to be organic? Like, I'm so curious about all of that. The work of Harvey Whitehouse on ritual, another you know anthropologist done a lot of work in this area. He talks about there being sort of two kinds of religions and two kinds of rituals, imagistic versus doctrinal. And imagistic rituals are those that you find in these sort of small tribal groups where that you have very intense rituals like rites of passage, even rites of terror, where people are cut up or people sent into the jungle for three days and they have to survive and come back. And these imagistic religions and imagistic rituals, they're very intense, very emotionally uh, engaging, but there generally is no priestly class in those religions. And when, when interviewed and asked people, what did this mean? The meaning given to the rituals is idiosyncratic. It doesn't, I mean, people believe different things about what happened to them out in the jungle. It doesn't matter. Everyone had the same experience. It's and like so, hazing at a fraternity. Absolutely. And so the binding happens because of the shared intense experience. Yeah. Not the dogma, the doctrine. Like some one fraternity brother might go, well, it was like going to war with my brothers. Another one might say, I just had to prove to myself that I could handle it. And I guess these guys could handle it too. Or someone else yeah. might say, I'd never been a part of a family before. You know, like those, those are not, those are kind of incompatible meanings, or at least they're not that overlapping. Exactly. Whereas someone who goes through confirmation and baptism, what did that mean? Well, you've got to, you, you have a script essentially of what <laughs> it means. And so, so that's the do doctrinal religions right. have a priestly class, have a doctrine, usually have a sacred text. And so meaning is then assigned to the rituals sort of by the religious community. Yeah. Larger religions, larger cultures have to have more sort of doctrinal approaches rather than the imagistic approaches. And one of the things where you see the imagistic sort of raising its head again is in small groups like a frat, a motorcycle gang. Yeah. A street, a street gang, even yeah. a street gang, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, or you know, I suspect some of the white supremacist groups now have militias, prob yeah, probably have their own rituals that no one knows about, but everyone in the group participates and experiences this, yeah. And so the meaning has to do with the identity fusion that happens in those small, intense groups. You fuse your identity with the group, and now you are a part of this group because we've had the same powerful experience together, and we've all done this terrible, hard thing together. And now we, we have this fused identity. What happens in identity fusion is that the group's opinions are your opinions. And so hmm. there's a sense that if, if the group believes something, I believe that. Yeah. And so it can be really powerful, but as we right. see, it can be pretty bad too. 
I'm still wondering about this like hierarchical versus organic thing. So for yeah. the for the doctrinal ones, right, where there is a sort of yeah, prescribed meaning. meaning, we could maybe think, oh, well, that's hierarchical. That's sort of the elite priestly power class imposing it on the people. But my thinking is my gut is that most of those probably develop organically and instances where that is not done like Catholic church and indulgences, like it doesn't last. Yeah. Uh, the in- inquisition doesn't last like the, and maybe there are people could come up with examples where these really sort of power hungry moves do work and, and they are able to sort of suppress the the lower classes and stuff. <laughs> but my sense is that the stuff that tends to go on is the stuff that people actually find useful and therefore yeah. they want to repeat it. And yes, there is a pastor or somebody involved in, in making it meaningful, but things will go by the wayside if they're no longer useful to people. Is that your sense as well? well? Exactly. And even if something is imposed from above, it doesn't stick around unless the people can appropriate it hmm. and, and maybe even change the meaning of it yeah. um, so that it, it fits into that, those things. And here's where, you know, I, I, I say, you know, I, I, again, you, you've said uh, picking on the evangelical megachurch is kind of low hanging fruit. But it's one of the ways that we show each other that we are all part of the same kin group now. That, that's right. That's right. It's, it's one of the it, it, it's uh, sort of an identity marker. Yes, it, it, it is. It has become an identity marker for this. The new tribe. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, that's right. yeah. But one of the things is um, when you do rituals sort of badly. And here's what I'm, I'll say about why I think a number of the things that the kind of typical evangelical church is doing badly is when the music is too loud that people can't hear each other sing in 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 the end that's going to actually undermine why there's music in the church Hmm. is that people actually aren't participating in the music they're just watching the music and so even you know 17th century 16th century uh protestant churches that had you know bach playing the organ holy cow, that's mind-bogglingly good, but it's still shifted back to you play the organ so the congregation can sing. You, you still have to have people engaged in this ritual. Interesting. And when the church does, essentially doesn't, does no longer have very carefully prescribed, causally opaque rituals, but then replaces them with smoke machines and lights and a rock and roll band, and then God moving every church service. I, I just, I've never been to an evangelical mega church service where there wasn't a sense that the emotion involved is a key part of this service. It's like they're trying to reproduce those special agent rituals every Sunday, which in normal situations should occur rarely. And that there should be a sense of just kind of normal, boring ritual every Sunday that retells the story and retells the story and retells the story. And so there's a sense that if the church is trying to accomplish too much in a service, it ends up not accomplishing anything that it really wanted to in the long run. And I think that's part of what leads then to a lack of cross-generational transfer. One last kind of topic to hit on is this sort of use for good and bad which yeah. we which we've talked about a little bit but one thing that's come up in my mind is around ritual purity so uh, you know and i can think of non-christian examples so I, I love the show rami on hulu it's about a, a muslim family in new jersey and I, I can't remember the name of it but there's basically a a ritual purification act that muslim men do before they go into a mosque and i think before they do their five times a day prayer or at least in some of those situations, they sort of like clean their nostrils and their ears and their mouth and their wash their hands. And it's like a whole little thing. And they, they sort of, it becomes almost like a plot point in the show. And there's Jewish versions of this ritual purity. There's, you know, we have a lot less of it as Protestants, but this kind of stuff so powerful because it interacts with our purity and disgust sort of modules of our psychology which can make it powerful for us in terms of, wow, it can really regulate us. 
Yeah. You know, the fact that taking a shower when you feel morally guilty can in some way like make you feel better is evidence yeah. of this. Yeah. But then of course there's exclusion and there is the flip side of disgust of, of purity and disgust psychology, which is revulsion. And you know, that, that type of psychology is indicated in every genocide we have record of, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of a lot of racism and, and, and really dark sort of outgroup belief stuff. So I don't know. That was kind of my first thought around use for good and bad. I'm curious what you think about that dimension. Absolutely. I mean, there's there's something about ritual that has to do with sort of uh, a fear of contagion. Yeah. And then, that, as you said, that that purity, ritual cleansing that leads to that. And there's something about that that is is very useful, again, in sort of emotion regulation and de-stress. And it influences people's behavior in sort of, you know, the Yerkes-Dodson law of, of appropriate arousal for the task. And the rituals... I don't know that. I'm not, I don't oh, know about that. So it's it's just a, it looking at people um, in, you know, stress isn't a, a blanket bad thing. We have to have a certain amount of stress. And certain tasks require more stress for us to be focused and, in, uh, you know, sort of uh, tense enough to do the task well. Stress as physiological arousal in general, yeah. basically. Okay. And so physiological arousal and the more well-practiced a task, the higher the level of stress we can take hmm. the, the, to do the task well. While still being able to accomplish it. More complicated the task, the lower the stress level. Right. And what rituals do, people who have a ritual to do that they do every time they do a particular task, they go through this ritual, it helps moderate the stress level to get it to the right place. Back to the baseball player. Yep. Yeah. That's that's the athletes doing their little ritual thing. It's the fishermen who have their ritual of their boat before they go out to the 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 dangerous waters. It helps moderate that that arousal level to get it to the place where they can actually perform at at the place they're supposed to perform. And so psychologically, then these rituals end up really helping us do uh, whatever it is we're trying to do better. So if someone's got a prayer practice or a journaling practice or any kind of prayer adjunct, you know, ritual, and then something bad happens to them and say, well, you know, I, I went, I took it to God. Yeah. You know, that can be a kind of a cheesy Christianism. But if we're looking through this lens, it's like, well, they've practiced the thing a bunch of times that when a, a new stressor comes into their life, if they do this ritual, it will drop down that stress and drop make it more manageable. So taking it to God, like whether or not metaphysically God is doing anything. And, you know, you and I might believe that God is doing something, but even if God's not doing anything, this is like one way of understanding the efficacy of someone sort of bringing a hard thing into their spiritual practice. And the more practiced they are in it, the more effective it will be. Whereas the person who only prays rarely in times of, of deep distress, they might not, they might be like, I don't know, this isn't really working. Yeah, yeah. And you want to say like, well, I'm, I'm sorry for you. If you did this twice a week for your it whole might, life, might it would probably work or it would work. It would do, <laughs> we, I mean, neurologically it would do more for you. Almost guaranteed is what you're saying. Again, that's just sort of instrumentally useful. Yeah. Thing of, of, of a ritual. Another sort of larger sort of in the church, we've talked about how it, it, it enhances social cohesion among the church body and then helps people feel like they're a part of the same family. Mm-hmm. The, the flip side of that, of course, is that it helps identify insiders and outsiders and allows you to be more exclusionary. Like the, there's a famous statement by a psychologist that says, yeah, religion makes and unmakes prejudice. Ritual can make and undermine connection. Mm -hmm. Children who have been ostracized by their in-group more assiduously practice the group rituals. And on every child group on a playground has its own little rituals. And any child who's been ostracized will be very careful to make sure they do the rituals to sort of announce, I'm a part of this group. You know, please let me back in. And so there's this sense that uh, one of the ways we identify families through rituals, but then that means that's how we identify people who we don't consider part of our family. Yeah. So is the best case scenario 
on this lens to basically have rituals that are prescribed fairly tightly that have predefined sequences, but to make it abundantly clear that everyone is invited to take part in them, right? Like, so maybe, you know, if you're trying to manufacture something here, you would not have a closed table for communion, right? You would say like, hey, everyone, now people have theological reasons for that, of course, but if you're just working cognitively, you would go, yeah, we we have this elaborate ritual for the Eucharist every week and everyone is invited to join in. We don't want any barriers to joining. Yeah. We don't want people to go, well, I got to get my theology. I got to make sure I believe Jesus raised from the dead first. I got to do it. You'd be like, no, just come. This is what yeah. we do and here's yeah. why we do it. These are the values. Figure it out later. It's really like an orthopraxy over, over orthodoxy approach, I suppose. Well, and, you know, as, as anyone who studies very much psychology can tell, you know, you, you know this, if you want to love someone, act as if you love them. Right. Yeah. When we have, when we have depressed clients, we do behavioral activation. Yeah. Like what are the behaviors you can start engaging in little by little that we are confident will improve your mood? Yeah. And then they, and then lo and behold, it does over time. My last question for you, you know, you mentioned earlier family data that you've gathered over the years from having raised children. And I thought that might be a cool context for my kind of final question about what would you recommend to people? So I'm going to actually just frame that. Like what have you learned from those years and looking back at how you and your wife chose to make these decisions around family? I mean, we've talked a lot about churches, so maybe let's end talking about the family unit what would you do, do different? What are you glad you did? Like, how, how would that kind of turn into advice? These have been very important for us. And in some ways, we, we fell into some of these things. There are family songs, family sayings, family movies that have become just sort of a part of how, the, how we are together that we didn't know were as important as they are until our children tried to introduce new people into the family. That is, uh, when daughter brought her fiancé to stay with us, when son brought his fiancé to come and, and be with us, what was really important for them was that we kind of did the family rituals and introduced these new people into the family rituals. I love it, yeah. And so, you know, the same, that the, the family's kind of sayings, the family songs, the family the way we do our family meals, how we play together, the little family dance parties in the kitchen, these things that they're all kind of expecting. And then, you know, we were emailing each other or or texting each other fairly regularly through the week. And the, the times when it all feels like this is lovely is when we get going on one of the family inside jokes. And it's just bap, 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 bap. And it's all, this helps us know these are my people. And we all kind of have the same sort of obsession with Lord of the Rings. And we, and, and we just get into, you know, a days long conversation about the Eagles and why in the world did he just end the movie right away with the Eagles going to Mordor, right? And then, and we just going on with theories and, and, and going and going and going and going. And it ends up being almost a ritualized conversation where we argue the points. And so that arises out of a family that has done things together that ended up being sort of um, in ways that my wife, Sally, and I never knew was a family tradition or family ritual until our children made it very clear. No, this is how we do this. We go, really? Because we always do it this way. Huh. And then they told you, <laughs> they told us that, yeah. okay, it's New Year's Eve. We're having fondue and having a, a, a slumber party in the living room where we all watch movies until we fall asleep on the couch. That's the family tradition. And so making sure you leave space for those. And here's the difficult piece. The culture doesn't want you to. The culture would really like to schedule you all on different things all at the same time and how to fight back against that. That's so tough. Yeah. There almost might be a, like a 
phones are put away prerequisite for some oh, of this stuff now. Absolutely, yeah. Maybe you could find certain games where the phones link up. I mean, there might be something, but yeah, that it's it's different than when your kids were being raised when I was when I was growing up. Yeah. I'm I'm old enough to to say, "Oh yeah, we didn't have internet until, you know, our our youngest was probably 8 or 9." So mm-hmm. that that made life a little easier. Yeah, I was 13 or 14 when we got it. Yep. Yeah. So, but anyway, I mean, having those family and I, you know, I, I'll say family rituals, even though it's kind of ritual light, but yeah. there are ways we operate. And it's like, why do you do it that way? Well, that's how our people do this. Yeah. Laird, thank you so much, man. What a great conversation. <laughs> this was really fun. I, you know, it, it was fairly wide ranging and incoherent, but it was lovely. <laughs> oh, I think probably median for me, uh, right, somewhere smack in the middle. Uh, I found it fascinating and uh, thank you for you know, this was your idea to talk about ritual so thank you it was a great idea and I know people will have really enjoyed it thank you so much great fun great fun